familiar faces, many of them, don't worry if I can't call your name offhand after you get 40, 45, you have difficulty remembering names of those whom you haven't seen in a while. But rest assured, we love you. We appreciate your presence tonight. Now, we're all familiar with passages such as 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If any man speak, speaking as it were the oracles of God. And I remember Paul's charge to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at verse 2, preach the word. But you know when we do that, there are those who say, you people in the Church of Christ are just too dogmatic. Now, dogmatic, that word means to be positive in manner and utterance. According to present-day usage, when one is dogmatic, he's saying the position that he holds is true. Therefore, all others cannot be true. In other words, it just can't be any other way. Someone says, well, I, I wouldn't be so narrow-minded in religion as to indict all others as being erroneous. And you know, from the standpoint of our old world's view today, that is a little bit narrow, isn't it? You've observed that nobody's responsible for anything today. That cartoon I saw on the editorial page some time ago, two officers arresting a man in the commission of a crime. One of them said, now you have a right to remain silent, for anything you say will be used against your grandmother and your mother for poor potty training. Nobody assumes responsibility uh, anymore. So from a worldly standpoint, that does that sounds rather narrow. But I tell you what, we all agree that God's word is true. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. So let's just go to the Bible and settle this issue and find out about this thing of, uh, of dogmatism. Does God want his people to be dogmatic? Well, you know, it's interesting. God is dogmatic. God is, was, and will ever be dogmatic in every statement, every precept, every promise. How could he be otherwise and be the infallible, infinite God why, the very idea to say that God is less than absolute and positive in his teaching and statements would be infidelity. Say, God said what he means. He means exactly what he said. God is the absolute in dogmatism. Uh, there's no question about that. As a matter of fact, uh, he demands absolute obedience to his will. He doesn't deal in quibbling or maybe so. He respects nothing but his own will. That's, uh, that's, that's being dogmatic, isn't it? But there are numerous illustrations in which the dogmatism of God is made manifest. If, for instance, men have had a lot of trouble with the creation of the universe. Interesting, isn't it? Someone said, my complicated process and volume upon volume has been written and... Uh, uh, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That takes care of it. Well, somebody says, don't believe it. That has nothing to do with it, except your relationship to God. That's the way it occurred. Oh, by the way, that is the only logical explanation for the origin of the universe. You think about it for a moment. You know, for the going on 79 years that I've been living, summer has always followed spring. And following summer, ah, there is the melancholy time of autumn. 
my favorite time of year, uh, in which we anticipate a rather severe and cold winter, but it's always been followed by the beauty and the warmth of spring. That's happened every year. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, and this universe, of which the Earth is a very small part, moves with mathematical precision. Years, days, the time is established by the mathematical, consistent movement of the universe. Well, you know, if that's true, and it is, then somewhere there's a great mathematician. Or somebody said it just happened. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's amazing to me that men will deny what the Lord said on the subject and then come up with something utterly, absolutely, positively ridiculous and impossible. Don't oh, I understand about physical science? Well, certainly physical science deals with physical matter. I understand about that. Ask how some found it. For instance, scientists say now, <clears throat> this occurred four million years ago. Uh, well, they can't determine exactly the time past a few thousand, but uh, anyway, why would they say that? Well, you just think for a moment. Uh, physical science, here's uh, a coal bed. That vein is so many feet deep in the ground. Thus, there would be so much pressure brought to bear. There would be, of course, a degree of heat, and all of these things put together. How long would it take to form that vein of carbon in the mm, three, four million years? I understand that. Yes, sir. Sure do. And if you had a medical man who understood the uh, skeletal structure and the muscle on a person, and you had him examine Adam, look him over good, check him thoroughly, top to bottom, He'd say, well, he's maybe, he's 22, 23 years old. No, he's 10 seconds. Right? He's 10 seconds old. Well, somebody says that couldn't possibly. <laughs> yes, sir. It created him full grown. Let the earth bring forth trees bearing fruit, wherein is the seed thereof upon the earth. And it was so. God created things full grown. You see, this earth, Isaiah tells us, was inhabited, uh, created to be inhabited. And since man would get coal, there was uh, fuel in the earth. Oil, gas, coal. God spake and was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalms 33, verse 7. That's the way it happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was waste and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved, King James says, brooded upon the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That's the logical, scientific explanation of the origin of this earth on which we dwell. There's no question. God doesn't go into detail. You're a free moral agent. You have to make up your mind whether you believe it or not. That's beside the point. God's dogmatic in the statement of it. Here's the way it was done. He doesn't change his mind on that at all. But then there are numerous instances of uh, God's dogmatism. You remember when he told uh, Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness? Exodus 25 verse 40 he said, See that thou build it according to the pattern that was shown thee in the mount. Specific. Exactly. Of course, we understand the Old Testament to be a system of types and shadows and prophecies, of which Christ is the antitype, the substance, and the fulfillment. So it had to be exact, because the antitype takes shape 
thereby. See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern which we showed thee in the mount. Don't want any additions or subtractions. No changes made at all. Good right. As a matter of fact, uh, we talked about Cain and Abel, did we not? Uh, sons of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain, a tiller of the soil, and Abel, a keeper of the sheep. And chapter 4 of Genesis came to pass in process of time that uh, Cain brought of the first fruit of the ground an offering unto Jehovah. Abel he also brought of the first wing of his flock and of the fat thereof. Oh, but the record says unto Abel and to his gift, God had respect. Unto Cain and to his gift, God had not respect. Why? Abel offered by faith. Verse 4, Hebrews chapter 11. Oh, faith cometh of hearing and hearing by the word of God. God told those boys what to offer. Abel did what he said. Nothing else will do. God's dogmatic. That's it. He respects only his own will. Uh, do you remember when Israel rebelled against Moses? Now, understand from a human standpoint, I know exactly where all Moses is coming from. These people have seen the power of God demonstrated time and day. Ten plagues in Egypt. Crossed the Red Sea on dry land, waters congealed on either side. God rained manna from heaven six days out of every week to feed them. I mean, they had witnessed his power time and time and time again. And here they are, grumbling and complaining. Uh, they're about to stone old Moses and go back into Egypt. Now, there's no water. We're out here in the wilderness. And you're responsible for all this. You've led us up out of it. Plenty and the abundance and the free. Freedom of the, uh, and uh, there's no water. Well, Moses prayed to God. God said, uh, take thy rod and stand before the rock. Speak to the rock. The waters will come. The people will drink and their cattle. Ready to stone him. I know how he feels. And he stood before that rock and he said, see you rebels. Shall we bring forth water from this rock? And he smote the rock twice. And the water came. And the people drank. But God said to Moses, because you believe not on me to sanctify me in the eyes of this people, you will not enter the promised land. God's dogmatic. But he says something that's not nearly it, that is exactly it. And the marvelous thing about this book, written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says it. Just exactly what God means. Yes, he was dogmatic about uh, keeping the Sabbath holy, wasn't he? In Numbers chapter 15. After God had given the law relative to the Sabbath, here's a fellow out picking up sticks. Well, you know, he's going to build a fire, cook his meals, and feed his family. I mean, you know, what, what, what's wrong? Well, God said, you'll do no servile work on the Sabbath. Well, they found him, and they put him up, because God had said nothing about any kind of punishment in consequence of that violation. And so they talked to the Lord about it in prayer, and God said, let the witnesses place their hands on him, take him out of the camp, stone him to death. Dogmatic. God means exactly what he says. And I need to appreciate that fact. Friends, God is dogmatic. There's no question about that. But then when you think about it, Jesus Christ is dogmatic. And of course, being God in the flesh, he could be no different from God. We understand that. That you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 23. So Jesus Christ is deity clothed in flesh for a specific purpose to make redemption available to sinners such as I. But this is God with us. Jesus Christ. Dogmatic? Why, sure. You know, some of the positive, harsh-seeming, cutting statements of the Lord would be shocking to the falsely pious 
religionists of today who are afraid to make positive statements for fear of people's feelings. Now the design of the gospel is not to hurt people's feelings. And no true follower of Christ has any joy in affecting the feelings of people. But when you run a sword, double-edged, right through a man's body, if he doesn't grunt, you missed him. And I mean the truth of God is designed to cut error from the heart. That's not pleasant. Most people don't like that type of thing. Well, that's why many, even in the church today, are softening the message. You did avoiding those conflicts. You know, you just want to say about the love and the good things and companionship and fellowship and Jesus Christ was dogmatic. He, they didn't crucify him because he won a popularity contest. Crucified him because there he stood. He is opposed to all error. He teaches only truth. You do one of two things with a fellow like that. You can kill him or join him. They killed him. Fine. That brought about my salvation. That's why he came. But there's guilt involved. Jesus Christ was dogmatic. But let's, let's go to some of his milder dogmatic statements. Uh, do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32? He said, But I say unto you that every one that putteth away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, maketh her an adulteress. And he that marrieth her committeth adultery. You know, it's interesting. You can't pen an easier to be understood sinners than that. If you need a little more clear, how about Matthew 19, 9? Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And he that marrieth her when she is put away, committeth adultery. Well, why would that be the case, living with another man's wife? Marriage, two people, two personalities of the opposite sex, joined in the sacred bond of marriage for so long as the two shall live on this earth. There are only two bases upon which that marriage may be dissolved and a second marriage contracted. Number one is the death of a spouse. Wife die or the husband die, the one still living is, of course, free to contract a second marriage upon their decision. Or, if there is sexual infidelity on the part of one from whom the guilty party will not turn, because reconciliation is far better than divorce and separation. But if they will not turn from that kind of thing, then, of course, the innocent party innocent party has the right to put the guilty party away and contract a second marriage. But that's it. What do you say, Lord? I say unto you, this is the authority, creator of heaven and earth. This is the one who gave us this blood-sealed covenant. Every word in it is a word of Christ. Verse 14, John chapter 16. I say unto you that whosoever, and the pronoun whosoever is applicable to the sentence of Adam. If you happen to have descended from Adam, Whosoever, in Matthew 19, 9, applies to you. Big, little, old, young, rich, poor, black, white, in the church, out of the church, makes a whosoever. When God brought marriage into being, in the formation of the home, eh, there was no church. That's for the happiness and the well-being, peace of mind of men and women. That's what marriage is all about. Two personalities of the opposite sex, for so long as the two shall live in this world. Building a home that respects the law of God and protects the morals of mankind. Not today. We have almost every kind of an interpretation given to that language, and you couldn't misunderstand it to save your soul. It's out of the question. 
Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. He's a married man living with another woman. And whosoever shall marry her when she is put away, without that exception, commits adultery. Why? He's living with another man's wife. Marriage is a one-shot proposition. We need to understand that. Uh, but somebody says, Preacher, that's dire, uh, dogmatic. That's, that's it, uh, dogmatism. The Lord stated it just like it is. No, no, that's the way it is. Well, I don't see it's fine. You're a free moral agent. You can either go to heaven or hell. That's your choice. But here's the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, verse 32. Understand it? No problem. A child can understand it. It's a matter of belief. It's a matter of acceptance or rejection. It's a matter of compliance or rebellion. That's our choice. Oh, but he was dogmatic in the statement. Made it very, very clear. You know, when it comes to entering into the kingdom of God, you know, Jesus said, uh, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who will enter the kingdom? You know, it's interesting when that Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and made a statement. Rabbi, teacher, eh, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs thou doest except God be with him. Jesus got right to his knee, didn't mince words. He said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, except one be born from above, we say again, and that's correct, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, old Nicodemus is perplexed. He doesn't understand this. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, obviously not. So the Lord, in verse 5, explains verse 3. Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except one be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Give it up. Oh, that's, uh, that's dogmatic. I mean, Lord, that's, that's very narrow. That's... Right. That's what he said about the entrance, isn't it? Enter ye in at the narrow gate. For broad is the gate and wide is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. Oh, but narrow the gate and straighten the way that leadeth unto life everlasting. And few there be that find it. The Lord's dogmatic. You know, he's dogmatic about the plan of salvation. He said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. What? Except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's no question about it. Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to be well-pleasing to it. That's dogmatic. I mean, that's a, this is a mandatory thing. It, it, it's a, I have to. It, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus said to believers, except you repent, you'll perish. Luke 13 in verses 3 and 5. And Paul taught the same thing on Mars Hill, verse 30, Acts chapter 17. We understand that. But that's a dogmatic, that is a positive statement. Right. Oh, and the Lord, you remember, said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Did he really mean what he said? I mean, he put both faith and baptism before salvation. You can be dogmatic in that. That's exactly the way it is. Every case of conversion in the book of Acts. I say, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Acts 22, 16. Uh, no question. Uh, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for, Greek preposition, ace, unto the remission of your sins. Verse 38. Friends, Acts chapter 2. We understand God is dogmatic. Christ is dogmatic. He means exactly what he says. And he says it in terminology so simple that it cannot be misunderstood. Yes, but preacher, it's so singular. It's just one way. It's so dogmatic. Right. Dogmatic. But you know, when you stop and think about it, the apostles were dogmatic also. Uh, I think uh, across the board, uh, the so-called Christendom today would suggest that uh, the salvation is in Christ. And by the way, you can get dogmatic about that because that's what the blood seal covenant of Christ teaches. Uh, that's what these inspired apostles wrote. Uh, no question. Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Second uh, Timothy 2.10. The witness is this, that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. First John chapter 5 at verse 11. This in whom we have our redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 1 at verse 7. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. How many soever be the promises of God in him is the yea. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 20. And on and on and on. Salvation is in Christ. Right. That's what inspiration tells us. Well, that's uh, very clearly set forth in this book. Well, you can be dogmatic about it. That's what it says. That's exactly what it means. Oh, but you can also be dogmatic, absolutely positive, about how to get into Jesus Christ. The apostles were. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul said, don't you know, brethren, that all we who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ did put on Christ. How do you get into Christ? Oh, you're baptized into Christ. But there's just one baptism. Ephesians 4, verse 5. Just one baptism. Right. And today, of course, people practice all kinds of things. And people say, well, now, that's fine. I was sprinkled. And, no, no. Uh, baptized, not randized. Dogmatic. It just says one thing. It says it to you, just like it says it to me. It means the same thing to you that it means to me. That's the good thing about simple terminology. That's the way the Bible is written, as we've noted many times, uh, down about the 6th to 8th grade level. Say, very easily understood, but very positive, yea, dogmatic in the statement. And I need to appreciate that fact. But you know, these apostles were dogmatic about telling us that there's just one church. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, Paul said there is one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. One what, Paul? There is one body. Well, well what is this body? Ephesians 1, 22, 23. He hath put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
Verse 24, Colossians chapter 1, for his body's sake, which is the church. The church is the body of Christ, right? How many bodies are there? Just one. Well, now someone says, preacher, man in this country alone, there are 2,000 differing religious institutions. Right, what does that have to do with anything? Well, man, you're flying in the face of everybody. No, 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 no. We're just teaching what the, well, somebody says, that's narrow-minded. No, that's dogmatic. It is a positive statement. Book, chapter, and verse. No, no, that's not nearly like it is. That is exactly like it is. And that's what faithful men and women are to proclaim to this old dying world. How many churches? Well, uh, just stop and think about it. He is head of the body of the church, you remember. How many bodies are there? Just a minute, there are heads. One head and 2,000 bodies? Ridiculous. There are just as many bodies as there are heads. What was it Jesus said, uh, speaking to Peter? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Well, he said, upon this rock, I, personal pronoun, will build my personal possessive pronoun, church, singular. Oh. But, upon this rock, I will build my church. How many church? Singular. As a matter of fact, you'll only read of one church in this book. There is not one word in this book applicable to a single denomination on earth, except by way of condemnation. Small portion of it is addressed to the alien sinner, informing him as to how to get into Christ. The rest of it is written to the people of God. They make up the community of the redeemed. That is, the Lord added to the church daily, such as were being saved. Verse 47, Acts chapter 2. To which church? What are you talking about? Which God? Which Christ? Which blood? Which Bible? That's ridiculous, right? Ridiculous. You only read about one church in this book. You know, sometimes people say, well, I, I don't know which church to join. I, oh, what are you talking about? Friend, anything you can join that's religious in nature will condemn you. Check it out. Don't you take my word. Anything that you can join that is religious in nature will damn your soul. You can't join salvation. No, no. You have to be saved from sin. And when you're saved, you're no longer lost. And there's only two classes of responsible people in the world today, the lost and the saved. That is to say, the world and the church. Now, man in the world is without God and without hope, Ephesians 2.12. Christ came to call men out of the lost state into the saved state, called out, a Greek term, ecclesia, translated church. He came to do what? Save the souls of men who were alienated from God. Who are they? They're those who make up his body, the church. Just one class of saved people, that's those that have been washed in the blood of Christ. Now there are manuals and disciplines and catechisms and the confessions of faith, the Book of Mormon, the catechism, on and on and on and on. That has nothing to do with it. God's word is dogmatic. It states it just exactly like it is. These apostles were dogmatic. Yeah, they said what now? They, they said there's just one church. Right, but you know they said something else about that church. They said that reconciliation, uh, being brought again to a harmonious, conciliatory, peaceful relationship with God, is found only in the church. What was it Paul said Ephesians 2 verse 12? You were at that time separate from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, but now in Christ Jesus, ye that were once afar off, are made nigh in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both one, break down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile both in one body under God through the cross. Through verse 16. Right? Reconcile all mankind, that's both Jew and Gentile, in one body under God. What is that body? The church. Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.24, Ephesians 1.22-23, numerous other passages. Reconciliation to God is available only in the church. And you can be dogmatic about that, because that's just exactly what this book teaches. And every time you read it, it teaches the same thing. And when you read it, it teaches you the same thing. And the only difference is a lot of people don't believe it, but that has nothing to do with it. That only has to do with their relationship to God and their alienation from the Almighty. God's very dogmatic. More than that, you know, these inspired apostles taught their disciples to be dogmatic. Can, can you imagine that? Uh, what was it uh, Paul said to Timothy? And with a very serious charge. I charge thee in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, who shall judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word without addition or subtraction. With no substitution. Friends, preach the word. Be urgent. There's only one way man can stand in a right relationship with God. And that's through the cleansing power of the blood of his son. That's available only through the instruction contained in this blood-sealed covenant. Preach the word. Be urgent. In season, out of season. Oh, that's dogmatism. Just preaching the word. Book chapter and verse. Yeah, but now somebody says, preacher, the other people have different interpretations. It interprets itself. I don't have any interpreting rights. I'm just a sinner seeking to be saved by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit revealed this message inerrantly to his disciples. And everything essential to my well-being spiritually is written in this book. And everything in this book is in harmony with every other thing in this book. So this book interprets itself. It means exactly what it says. Uh, dogmatism. What did you say, John? Second John, the only chapter, verse 9. Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the teaching of God, or Christ, hath not God. What? Whosoever transgresseth, steps across, or goes onward, and abides not in the teaching of Christ, hath not God. It is amazing to me how many people, good people, very sincere, deeply religious people, do a lot of good, are completely lost. In fact, they've never been saved. They're not even encouraged to feed their souls upon spiritual food. They don't even know what the Lord said. They depend on men to tell them, what. Oh, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. What is that, First John chapter 2, verse 1? Think about it. Check it out. 
Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, examining the scriptures daily whether these things were so. It's the only way you can be saved. Base your hope upon the thus say of the Lord. And it says the same thing tomorrow that it says today. And it will be that way when you stand in judgment. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings, hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John 12, verse 48. And there everyone right here. Everyone. And you see, if you could put a different interpretation on it, and you join this and he joins that, and it, well, then you throw it away. It wouldn't be worth a flip. No, no. It's dogmatic. God says exactly what he means. He means exactly what he says. Yes, we're dogmatic good people, and that's why such a lesson on this subject. You're ridiculed for what you believe. And the pressure is even heavier when you seek to share that good news with others. Feel good about it. You are in excellent company. That's sad. Dogmatic. But then uh, God is. Christ is. The apostles were. And those whom the apostles taught in the next generation immediately succeeding were. So when you're dogmatic, absolute, and positive in your teaching, you're in good company. <clears throat> Don't worry about persecution. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, blessed are you when men shall reproach you and persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. What are you saying, Lord? Friend, when you stand for the truth, when you teach only the truth, the religious world is going to persecute you, and you can count on it. But that's an honor. That's a, just preach it like it is. Easy to bear? No. Indeed, the Lord did say it was easy to live the Christian life. It's a narrow gate and a difficult way. But you and I can do it. All we need to do is just teach what the Lord said. And feel good that there are those who persecute you because if you're not persecuted, there's something wrong. You're not really laboring diligently for the Lord's service. All who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You can count on that. What is it? Second Timothy chapter 3 about verse 12. Oh, evil men and impostors shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 13. Oh, then uh, I need to be dogmatic. In the presentation of truth, do it in love. But now dogmatism does not exclude love. Dogmatism is a positive presentation of the only thing that makes men free, and that's truth. And that's every bit written down in this book, John 17 at verse 17. The reason we share it is because we love the souls of men. Why did Christ come? To save the souls of men. Well, why didn't he just agree then with everybody? Why didn't he say, oh, what fine people, and these are religious, and man, they get... <laughs> they're going to hell. He came to save them. How do you do that with the double-edged sword? Easy, no say. No say. What makes you free? Truth makes you free. John 8, verse 32. Preach it like it is. Yes, you'll suffer because of it. But when you're dogmatic, you're in good company. Think about it.
it's possible that you're here tonight subject to the Master's invitation. Maybe as a child of God, maybe this thing has bothered you over the years and has been a hindering factor uh, in your efforts to share the good news with others. Because you know people who are very fine folk, deeply religious, very sincere people. They are benevolent and helpful to others, and you've hesitated, you know, to, to share uh, the gospel with them because you're afraid maybe they're going to think you're narrow. They will. They're going to think you're dogmatic, positive in manner and utterance. Otherwise, they'll never understand it. Contrasting truth with error. Well, somebody says they may get mad at it. There's no may about it. Say, unless they're honest, unless they want to be saved. They'll persecute you, especially if they are religious people. So that's what Christianity is all about. Dogmatism. Being positive in manner and utterance. If you're subject tonight as an alien sinner, you believe Christ to be the Son of God, why not repent, confess his name before men, be buried with him in baptism? Most simple thing on earth, but it has eternal consequences. It provides the greatest blessing that you'll ever receive, even if you finally come to own the world. Monster to nothing. For what shall a man be profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Matthew 16, verse 26. If you're subject to his invitation, why not come, even now, while together we stand and sing?